What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Gene Berdachevsky, co-founder and CEO of Sela Nanotechnologies. Sela is developing a new lithium-ion battery chemistry that uses silicon in place of graphite, leading to an improvement in battery density by at least 20%. Gene was the seventh employee at Tesla, where he developed the Roadster's battery. For the last nine years, his team at Sela has been working on a drop-in replacement for today's lithium-ion batteries. January of 2021, the company raised $590 million to expand its manufacturing operations. In this interview, I spoke with Gene about what it takes to scale a new battery technology. On a personal note, few people in my career have encouraged me to think as big as Gene, and I'm lucky to call him a friend. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2019. Right. This is What It Takes. I'm Emily Kirsch. Welcome to Powerhouse. Gene, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Emily. Absolutely. So, Gene, Sila has been in the news recently following, about a month ago, the announcement of your latest round, $170 million, led by the German automaker Daimler, brings total funding of the company to just under $300 million, puts the valuation of the company at a billion dollars. And uh, you also announced that Jeff Immelt, former CEO of GE, joined your board. So I think for everyone here and everyone listening, the first question that I'm going to ask and the easiest question of the night is, what is Sela? Ah, all right. What is Sela? Um, so we are a uh, materials developer and manufacturer. Uh, we've in- invented a next-generation battery chemistry uh, that we've um, 
taken about seven, eight years here to perfect and get to an initial production scale. And over the coming years, we're going to scale that up um, and manufacture that material. What it allows us to do is is uh, drop that material into any battery factory uh, to be used in any battery to replace uh, graphite, uh, which is the anode uh, standard today. And those batteries then can store more energy. And what that does for the world is um, in, in two main market segments in consumer, it allows you to either have longer runtime on your cell phone or uh, more interestingly, add more features or maybe build devices that couldn't be built before. Um, and what it means on electric vehicles is uh, you can use fewer cells to build a pack of the same capacity, go the same range. And if you can use fewer cells, uh, the pack is cheaper. And that's, of course, the, the key limiting factor is the cost of the batteries for uh, adoption of electric vehicles. And what does the product actually look like? Forbes described it as black magic powder. How accurate is that? <laughs> I don't know if you can see the magic part in it, but it, uh, but it does look like black powder. And, uh, and that's quite important because it replaces graphite as a one-for-one -one substitute. And so it replaces graphite black powder. So it looks very similar to the incumbent material. Um, it behaves very similar, and that's part of the attraction for customers using it, that they don't have to change a whole lot of how they, how they do things. So um, it's unremarkable-looking black powder on, at the, <laughs> to the naked eye. Gotcha. So uh, getting to how all of this came to be. So like many famed entrepreneurs, you are an immigrant. You were born in the Ukraine, raised in Russia, north of the Arctic Circle, where there were perpetual nights, yeah. which sort of sounds like the start of a movie. Um, and when you were nine, your family moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. And uh, what... what uh, aspects of your childhood shaped who you are. I know you're an only child. Um, yeah. Your parents were nuclear submarine engineers. Yeah, so the reason you go north of the Arctic Circle, uh, 69th parallel, is because it's the northest most port that doesn't freeze. Uh, and so my folks did work there uh, on nuclear subs when I was little, so I spent about five years there. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, as, as an immigrant for me, moving to the States, you sort of, you don't know the language, um, you don't know the culture, so you spend a lot of time um, just observing. And I think that's a, a, a skill set that's um, important for an entrepreneur because what you're looking for is you want to have a unique perspective that sort of happens to be right. And and you form that unique perspective um, through observation. And, and so I think a lot of the sort of early childhood looking and watching and seeing how things are done and why is, can't this be better, um, you know, inspires sort of a curiosity and also kind of an independent um, perspective. And, you know, I think... Um, the other part of it is I, I am an only child. Um, those the friends of mine that know me sort of make, make fun of that because it's got a lot of characteristics that come along with it. But one of the things that comes along with that is, um, you know, I've always wanted brothers and sisters, and so I've I've made a lot of very close relationships and close uh, friendships, and those um, are very important to sort of just the founding of Sila and being an entrepreneur. Because when you're you know two people, three people, um, one person, you know, you need someone else who kind of believes your brand of crazy isn't that crazy uh, and is willing to go along, and so. Um, a lot of the early engineers or um, you know, fo um, folks that I, I, I made friends with first before they sort of joined us, uh, and, and that's made all the difference. It also sort of makes the journey more fun. As an immigrant, did you ever feel underestimated? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think um, constantly I sort of, um, I still think of, of myself as, as, as an underdog, which, um, you know, I, I think at this point, sort of my wife reminds me, is like, it's not necessarily true anymore. Uh, You're a unicorn having, now. Yeah, right. So it's different different kind of pressure. But I think it's a it's sort of a mentality, um, again, goes along with having a unique perspective that the world doesn't necessarily agree with. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about in, in CELA's context, that's, you know, a lot of folks have thought this problem of silicon anodes has been solved for 
really, really long time. I mean, I sort of back even um, when when I was in Tesla 2008, there were people putting out press releases that this was ready to commercialize in a year or two. And there's graphite is still the absolute baseline standard in every lithium ion battery you find today. And so, uh, you know, uh, we, we heard a lot of, hey, isn't this already soft? Why do you need to do this uh, from investors and others? And so, you know, you, you, you need to really believe that unique, that, that perspective. And uh, it helps to sort of be used to being underestimated. Mm. I know you were shy in high school uh, and you spent most of your time at a math and science center for just 30 out of the 500 kids in your class. Super nerds. Super nerds. Um, in 2011, you moved to California to go to Stanford. 2001. I'm sorry, 2001. Yeah, 2001. Not that young. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you had me fooled with um, uh, 2001. And uh, I know your parents wanted you to study computer science. So you decided yeah. to absolutely not do that um, and to yeah. do mechanical engineering because you thought it had the broadest applications. And I know there were two formative aspects of undergrad at Stanford. One was being part of the solar car team, so actually building and racing solar cars. And I know you spent more time in this dilapidated solar car shed than you did in your classes. And the other was this experience uh, in a class where you had to write a business plan. Yeah. And you decided to to write a plan to start a business uh, for building electric sports cars for the U.S. market using lithium-ion batteries. Um, I want to note for the audience that you got a B minus on that that which, project, which at Stanford is like failing. Right? Uh, it's so completely, it's complete, just, completely, it's, uh, it's devastating. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then six months later, a former solar car alum, JB Straubel was the first employee at Tesla and and you wanted to talk to him because you thought that Tesla had ripped off your business plan idea. Yeah. Uh, so you wanted to talk to him. Uh, tell us tell us why and what you did. Yeah. So uh, so I had written this business plan and, and sort of in 2003 and kind of unbeknownst to me, it was based in part on a white paper that was published by a little company in Southern California called AC Propulsion, which um, uh, the founding CEO of Martin Eberhardt of Tesla had actually contracted them to convert to lithium ion. And so I sort of seen this white paper and got really inspired, wrote this business plan. And uh, and when I heard that there were people who were building a company around it, I was like, ah, my idea, like I have to go do this. So um, I heard JB was working there and, and uh, but, you know, I was uh, in my third year at Stanford. I sort of hadn't graduated yet, hadn't finished uh, my degree. I like how you say sort of, I sort of hadn't graduated yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, um, uh, you know, I, I didn't think that they would want to recruit me, so I needed to find some excuse to go talk to him. And so I knew he had built um, an electric Porsche. He had converted an old, um, uh, I want to say 944 into electric. And so I kind of said, emailed him and said, hey, I'm thinking about building my own electric car. Can I talk to you? And like, of course he's going to talk to me about that because it's like this thing he did for years. So I go and I, I spend a little bit of time talking to him and um, and uh, he tells me for like an hour about how to do it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm listening. You know, and then at the end, I'm like, tell me about this thing you're working on, uh, this, this company. And, and he kind of turns a little red and doesn't really, you know, I'm not supposed to know about it. And I push him and he finally tells me. And I, you know, as soon as he tells me, I basically say, look, I'll quit school. I'll do whatever it takes. Like, sign me up. I'll sweep your floors. Just whatever it takes. Um, and so, so that turns into a sort of a very uh, formative um, adventure where um, sort of a couple days later, one of the other co-founders calls me up and says, you know, you sound like a nice kid, like we'll interview you, but we're gone for two weeks. We're going to, to England to negotiate with Lotus for the um, contract for the, for the initial chassis for the Roadster. And when we come back, we'll, we'll find some time to talk to you. And I kind of said, well, you're here now, right? This is on a Thursday night. And he's like, yeah, but we're leaving. I'm like, well, when are you leaving? He's like, Sunday. Okay, well you know, what airport are you leaving from? <laughs> and uh, he's like, SFO. Okay, what time? 
6 p.m. How about I meet you there and you interview me right there? And I think they just didn't know what to say, so they, they said, sure. So uh, International Terminal of SFO, Martin's, uh, Martin Eberhardt's waiting in line um, for his United flight. And, uh, you know, it, back then, like, there was no digital kiosks for, for, uh, for, for check-in, so that was good. I had about 45 minutes. They asked me a bunch of questions. You know, I'd done a bunch of work on solar car. I knew about vehicles. So um, they said, you know, Sure, we'll we'll take you on. And and uh, uh, actually that night they you know they they called it one of the other co-founders and 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 I said I'm going to drive by his house, get the keys so I can be first one in um, literally the next day. And you so I go home. From I got the house. I got the keys from uh, the Martin Mark Tarpening's house who wasn't flying to to England uh, that Sunday night. So I would be the first one in the office Monday morning, which was a little extreme. Um, <laughs> because the rest of this definitely yeah, isn't extreme. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I so I called my parents that night, and this was summer after junior year, and I said, you know, I'm I'm stopping out of school. I I, I uh, I'm I'm joining this company, and you know, I, my mom just about had a heart attack. Um, but once we sort of talked a little more about it, it sort of made sense, and and um, and yeah, I started that Monday, uh, and 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 uh, spent about four years there. Uh, did a lot of battery system development there, uh, sort of figured out how to do engineering in the real world there, and also got to see how a startup has built a lot of really, really good things in those early years um, that, that have shaped what you know Tesla became mm-hmm. has become today. I know you were the seventh employee at Tesla, and so people then always ask you, what was it like working with Elon? But yeah. you were there pre-Elon. Yeah, so you know, at, what had happened was Martin had, had contracted uh, AC Propulsion to build this prototype in, in, um, in 03. And uh, he tried to ra- use it to raise money, and he literally pitched every every vent- venture capitalist on Sandhill, and they all said, "No, this is crazy." And there was one person who was sort of like, "No, this is actually a pretty good idea." And and so that was Elon. And so Elon funded you know the majority of the Series A. And uh, but but at that time, I think he was the he was on the board, and, and I believe he was chairman. Um, so he would generally come for board meetings. But really, the company was run, and, and sort of those first four years, the team was built out by Martin and, and the other co-founders. And I understand for your Roadster battery development, at one point you were just super gluing together laptop batteries. Yeah, so there's you know three really new technologies in a in an electric car compared to combustion one: the motor, the controller, and the batteries. And and the motor is literally a hundred year old technology invented by Nikola Tesla, right? AC induction. It's it's uh, it's been refined and perfected, and so that was pretty good. Uh, the power electronics were about twenty years old. They were actually first invented for the GM EV1. A little bit of a little bit of fun side history there. Um, but the lithium ion batteries, the only prototype that existed were super glued cells. And so I have great pictures of of JB just super gluing batteries in his backyard. Now I was super gluing them with him. But, um, you know, so we those first modules we built. And and so that was sort of the newest thing was clearly the hardest um, puzzle. And, 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 you know, I'm uh, sort of very drawn to the hardest puzzle. And as a 20-year-old engineer without a degree, you're sort of equally not good at anything. And so you're equally good at everything, right, is kind of the the, the perspective that I had. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm going to work on that. And uh, and and so that's worked, worked out pretty well. So then in 2008, after four years at Tesla, you decided to go back to Stanford to get a master's of science in energy engineering. I know you were trying to save money at the time. So you were living illegally in a warehouse without heat mm-hmm. uh, with the person who would become your co-founder, mm-hmm. um, Alex Jacobs. Mm-hmm. And, and so without heat in this warehouse where you're living illegally, what did you do to stay warm? Yeah, you have good, you have good sources for, uh, for, your, for your questions, it seems. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, so so Alex and I had rented a, a, a warehouse because it was so cheap. Uh, and mind you, this was 2008, just before the crash. And so when the crash came, we were like, I think we could fit like 10 people in here. Uh, and, um, but yeah, it had no heat. And so one of the things we uh, concocted, and I have pictures to prove it, was we got uh, heated blankets that you could plug in and we cut them up and sewed them into bathrobes. And so we could plug in and on an extension cord walk around sort of anywhere in the warehouse. <laughs> Very warm. And, and you would think it doesn't get that cold at night, but it really does. I mean, it sort of gets down into the, you know, low 40s. And if you have literally no insulation on your warehouse, you really need that blanket, that, that bathrobe. So yeah. it's an innovation we never commercialized. There's, there's, there's still time. But a good energy innovation. 100%. Um, so after Stanford, you spent a year as an entrepreneur in residence at Sutter Hill Ventures. Um, ultimately, you came up for the idea of Forcila at Sutter Hill, and they became your first investor. Um, tell us, how did you how did you come up with the idea for Sila? Yeah, so um, one of the things that I witnessed from our perspective, you know, as, as we were building Tesla, there's all this other clean tech investment happening, this sort of clean tech boom that ultimately mostly went bust. And um, the, the, the question kept coming up, why? You know, and was this predictable and were these good investments or bad investments? Because whether something succeeds or fails, doesn't isn't necessarily a direct indicator of what's a good investment or not, but it's but it's a leading indicator, and especially if all the things that are the same um, tend to tend to fail. And so um, I was fortunate enough to meet uh, one of the managing directors at Sutter Hill, who's who's been a longtime mentor, and he invited me to be an EIR. And what I wanted to do was understand the lens of venture capital through Sutter Hill is um, a, I think I want to say it's a 55 or 60 year old firm. It's one of the most successful in the valley that uh, most people have never heard of, and. And, um, and so they've been doing this very, very well for a long time. And so I spent a lot of time trying to understand what that lens looks like and could we apply that to energy? Were there business opportunities? Were there markets that really made sense? And so, um, so I looked at probably a dozen different energy technologies and I would you know, come into the partner's offices and say, how about this or this or that? And they, they would tell me, it's, this is really dumb for X and this is really dumb for Y. And sometimes they'd be right. And you know, sometimes I'd find a counter argument, but eventually it, it shaped my perspective of, you, know, you need to find um, markets that that um, have you, you need to have premium segments of the market that you can address early that you can really um, you know tolerate higher a higher cost basis. You can't just sell an undifferentiated electron for less than the incumbent uh, because you have no way to get there without insane amounts of capital. And so you need to find high value markets that allow you to uh, essentially pay for the for your cost of development to pay for for some of the higher costs you're going to have up front on your technology, and then work your way into these bigger markets. Um, and, and so, you know, we were able to, to do that with Sela. And if you look at our business model, which is to make this material and to partner with uh, battery companies to uh, who will adopt it and, and sell it to the same customers, we're leveraging all of their battery infrastructure. We're not building batteries ourselves. And so it takes about 10 times less capital. And so we've, we've raised a lot of money, but it's 10 times less than what you'd need to raise if you were to build the batteries yourself. Um, so it was a very sort of formative experience. And, and um, I think there's sort of a lot uh, to be learned. And, I, and this... Uh, the lesson of how to build energy businesses in this next, this second generation. I have a lot of entrepreneur friends and and, uh, and other co-founders and CEOs that I think we've, we we collectively take it upon ourselves. We have to do it better than than it was done in the clean tech boom, just because there isn't the capital available, and frankly, a lot of those companies didn't have any impact. And so, how did you meet uh, Gleb, who became your co-founder? Yeah, so I was, you know, I kept looking through this lens, and I could assess the technologies. Um, and one of the technologies I assessed was um, a professor's 
technology for a grid scale battery that just wasn't mature and ready enough. And I sort of told him so. And, um, and he was, uh, sort of, uh, he remains a good friend to this day. And he said, well, you should meet my, you should meet this other professor who's got this cool technology that maybe is applicable for EVs and consumer. And so I call Glub up and the story repeats itself a little bit. I call them up and, uh, we, we, we talked for like an hour and, uh, we just hit it off. And, um, I remember pretty well, it was on a Wednesday and I said, you know, why don't I come out to Atlanta and meet you? Uh, so I flew out that Monday, spent two days with him, looked at his, looked at his labs, looked at his technologies, looked at everything, um, came back, walked into the partner's office. And I said, you know, look, I, it's, it's a materials play. Here's how it fits into the industry. Here's the microeconomics that we think we can drive, um, the unit economics and uh, the partner looked at me and said this is the company you're going to start uh, and right there you sort of you know you know you know when you see it if you if you know what you, what framework you're looking for um, and you know I, the person has a lot to do with it of course um, and and so we um, um, you know, that was in May. It took us a couple months to sort of due diligence and get everything incorporated and set up and take the license out of Georgia Tech. But essentially within, you know, five days of, of getting to know each other, it was pretty clear that it was a really, it would, it would be a really good idea and a good opportunity to pursue. Um, and how much did you raise as part of that first round? So uh, we were very fortunate because the, the Sutter Hill folks had known me for a while. They were willing to, to, to stake us a little further. So they, uh, they led a $5 million financing, um, and we, were, we brought in Matrix Partners, which is another fantastic firm that's been with us the whole time um, and con- has invested in every round, uh, also in that, in that Series A. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, th- these days folks call that a pre-seed, but for us we call that a Series A, uh, a little traditional like that. <laughs> Things have changed. Um, how old were you when you started CELA? Uh, I was 27 for a day before becoming 20, <laughs> a 28-year-old CEO of CELA, yeah. And why the name CELA? Ah, so um, so Sila. Uh, so I'm, I am a Russian immigrant. Um, our other co-founder Gleb, uh, the, the professor from Georgia Tech, uh, also happens to be a Russian immigrant. And so um, the name Sila in Russian means strength or power or energy uh, uh, phonetically. And so uh, we sort of, you know, it looks like silicon, um, but but actually has some some secondary meaning for us. Nice. Um, it was a rough time in clean technology at that time. So what was it like? raising money and launching the company then? You know, the, the Series A in some ways were the first money in, and in some ways is one of the easiest rounds to raise in, in some ways. And the reason is, you know, it's, it's all promise at that point. It's all sort of upside and, and you're sort of pitching a dream and you're pitching a story and you have not met reality yet in any reasonable way. And so, um, so the A was okay. The series B was by far the hardest round. So I think you sort of go from, you know, Hey, we got this thing off the ground. You have a certain amount of euphoria, um, the, the first money in, and then inevitably things take a lot longer. You haven't made all the progress you expected. You know, you budgeted for some overage, but you still didn't get there. And so then you're going out into the market and people are at this point expecting to, to grade you on what you've done. And you just haven't hit the goals because you didn't know how hard they were going to be. And these were, this is one of the hardest problems in the world. Um, and, and so uh, that was rough. The B was very rough. We had sort of rough term sheets and the like, but eventually got a good, good financing together. Um, and then it sort of has progressively gotten a little easier. The Series C, we had a couple op, op, good options for the Series D. We had a few more, and and obviously this latest financing has been um, has been fantastic, um, and and the markets really come to us. And I think in you know if you were starting the same thing today, you know it would still take you seven or eight years to develop technology because science doesn't move faster when you just throw more money at it. it really doesn't care. Um, <laughs> 
the 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 roadblocks take time. Um, so it was sort of also lucky in retrospect. You know, we sort of timed it well, if you will. Although we had you know no idea that we were we weren't necessarily trying to time it well. Uh, and I know a year before starting the company, you met the person who became your wife, Michelle, who's here. Uh, and at the same time, you were recruiting uh, Alex Jacobs to be your co-founder, yeah. who you lived with in the warehouse with the electric blanket robes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and so uh, tell us about Alex. Yeah, so so he builds much more sophisticated things these days. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so so I <laughs> um, so, so um, you know he, he's just one of the best engineers I, uh, I, I, I I've ever known, uh, and I knew at that time. And um, we uh, we worked at Tesla together, so we kind of we became friends uh, through that shared experience. And kind of coming back to you know being being the only child that never had brothers, you know I sort of we, we treated each other like brothers. And it was as you go into something so difficult, you know, we, we moved, uh, to Atlanta, uh, to start the company. And I, I just, you know, you, you don't do that alone. It's it, a lot of this stuff takes a village in many ways. And so you need some of those friends. Um, we, you know, we proceeded to recruit a couple of uh, more close friends immediately after that. And that that's the kind of stuff that sustains you through, you know, seven or eight years of technology development, product development when, you know, the outcome is worth it, but, but it's, uh, um, you, you, you really, you need a, you need a good cohesive group that, that that um, isn't concerned about how long it's taking. Mm-hmm. Why Atlanta? Uh, Georgia Tech. So, you know, um, our co-founder um, had, had his uh, academic lab there. We wanted an opportunity for him to be able to just walk across the street. It would have been a lot harder if we'd uh, started the company here. But we also kind of agreed in advance that that it would make a lot of sense to base the company here as we got the technology a lot more um, uh, understood and and got our hands around it. And, uh, and so we just, you know, plan, always plan to move the company. Um, out here, we're a lot closer to capital. We're a lot closer to uh, our customers. Um, we're a lot closer to our uh, battery partners in Asia. Um, and there's a huge talent pool from, from the clean tech boom that, you know, that remains, all the, all the great engineering remains. And so uh, we could leverage that. But, you know, interestingly, Atlanta was, was really great um, in that it, it allowed us to keep a low profile. And allowed us to stay focused. I think in the Bay Area, it's easy to get distracted with you know how someone else is doing or what else is going on in the market or the industry. And it's it's quiet and it's awesome in Atlanta. And uh, you just go in and you do good work for you know we did that for a little over three years and it was great. When you first moved there, how long did you think you would be there? I told everybody it would be six months. <laughs> And I think some of those folks are here in the audience. They're still working with us. Um, so they, you know, actually, um, yeah, we, we thought we'd be there for six months. We'd sort of develop the tech, get the Series B. You know, um, Alex is shaking his head because he knew it wasn't going to be six months. But people sort of, uh, you got to give people something they can at least plausibly kind of believe uh, to, to go along in the journey. Um, no, but but it was, it, was um, it, it took a lot longer uh, and, uh, um, we just had no idea at the time. I think it takes a. It takes. You need a a, a a certain small amount of naivety going into solving some of these problems to sort of get to the other side. Because once you start swimming, you just kind of get halfway there. You know, you're closer to the other side. So just keep going. Um, but if you know, if you told us you go to Atlanta for three years and figure it out, it would been been a tough sell. How many on your team when you moved back to the Bay Area? About thirteen of us. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Um, and then. At what point did you and Michelle have your first kid in this? Journey? 2016, um, right after we closed the Series C, which is uh, 
definitely like a good time to, to have a kid is after a financing, after not close. before, not before. Yeah. <laughs> we, we made that mistake with the second sort of midway through. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. And then how did you scale Sela from, from 13 to 125, which is where you are now? You know, I, I don't know that I can, I mean, step by step. Um, one thing we've we've done a lot of is uh, um, try to grow at a steady rate rather than sort of all at once. And and one of the things that helps you do, so we've, I think we've, progr- you know, we've grown, grown 30% kind of every year roughly and and um, from when we moved. And, and so one of the things that lets you do is it kind of lets you fold in new people into the culture and let sort of them... Um, become part of the culture and contribute to that culture before you sort of bring in the new cohort. If you scale really, really fast, if you sort of double the team over six months, you you know, there's as many new people as there are sort of old guard and, and you can start to have some tension with the culture. Um, but but always mindful of, of that. Um, we, you know, we probably, uh, we, we, at the later stages in our recruiting process, we probably reject more candidates just from a, a culture at, uh, uh, values fit and kind of, you know, are they going to add something to our culture perspective more so than from a technical perspective? Um, so just very carefully. And I think we've, we've, every year we've had an operating plan. We said, we're going to hire this many. We always hire less because, um, when you're on these really long journeys, it's, it's much more about not having, um, you know, making sure you have a cohesive unit, a cohesive team that has high retention, uh, more so than sort of hitting your numbers and getting, getting the hires right there. What changed about your role with each subsequent round? So yeah, one thing I, I noticed is after every round, 
when you when you raise a fun, uh, round as a as a CEO, you sort of go into a dark hole for like three months, and you just go. You know, I go talk to fifty investors, and um, I'm 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 grumpy, and no one wants to talk to me, and um, and and sort of the company. You know, the 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 folks running the company keep keep things moving, um, and when I come back, the company's a little bigger. We have this new mission. You got to figure out what you're going to do with the capital, and um, you. I found that I always give up a job. So in sort of bef- after the Series A, like I could be an engineer, I could run experiments, I'd run the tools at night. You know, we'd sort of take turns being night shift across the whole or evening shift across the whole company, um, and and then you know had to stop doing that by the B. And then after the Series B, you know I couldn't go to every technical meeting, and after sort of the Series C, I sort of couldn't even like show up to many of the group meetings. You know, so you sort of um, your role gets smaller, but what you do carries a much bigger impact. And I think it's true for kind of every person in the organization is something that, you know, engineers struggle with. It's something that I struggle with because I still want to still check out the experiments and see how they're going, which I, which I do from time to time. Um, as you've scaled the company, have you had to make any major pivots? No. So I, that, that's been very fortunate for us. We've, sort of had, we've had this perspective. We've had this vision. Uh, we're going to make this type of product, and we've never really changed direction. And I think credit to you know essentially some of the training um, I got through my entrepreneur residentship at, at, at Sutter Hill of, of sort of picking the right markets, picking the right approach, and and then just being able to to efficiently use all those resources. I think it would have been very very hard if we had to have a major pivot because mm-hmm. you barely have enough resources for one such problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What is Zila's business model? Yeah, so it's to manufacture the best materials in the world and uh, and incorporate those into those best batteries in the world for the best products. Um, you know, so we are we will be a manufacturer. We are a manufacturer, and so we get paid for producing uh, materials that have performance characteristics that no one else can achieve. Um, and what makes Sela better than the half a dozen venture back companies that are all racing to achieve the same goal? Yeah, so um, a couple things. Uh, one is that it works. Um, and and that and that sounds like a small thing in 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 batteries, but actually, you know, we we deliver prototypes to customers that they can test and validate and and see that this stuff works. And in batteries, it's actually that's actually rare. But that's that's a that's entry level, and and sort of there's other other technologies that that work. Um, there's a couple of things we do differently as well. One is we're 100% compatible with existing battery factories. So you think about some of the technologies folks are working on, uh, they would have to build new factories to to deploy those technologies, new battery factories. We just we build a material factory, but it's sort of a tenth the scale or a tenth the cost of a of a full battery factory. And and so by being compatible, all the infrastructure and all the factories going up to to build the 10 million electric vehicles that we're gonna have five years from now, six years from now. Um, we're compatible with that. So drop-in, drop-in ability of our technology is a, is a key feature. And then there's two other things which have to do with manufacturing. So um, having seen, uh, you know, the, ha- having gone through a Tesla experience, um, one of the things you, you think about is what it, you have to start with the end in mind. And the end in mind for us was always deploying cars and, and deploy and have an impact, you know, make, it, make a dent in the, in the uh, energy landscape. And to deploying cars, you know, there's about... 10 to 20 kilos of our product needed for every electric vehicle. And so you're pretty quickly talking about hundreds of thousands of tons of product. And so there's a couple things. If you don't get them right from day one, you're never going to get them right, uh, which is we only use global commodity precursors to manufacture our materials. So we're using things that are available at massive, massive scale uh, so that we can actually attack this industry. And we actually made that a rule for our scientists in development. You know, you can only use these things or if you use derivatives, you you have to have a plan for how you're going to get back to using only those kind of commodities. 
And you also have to use only manufacturing techniques that are um, we call bulk manufacturing techniques, so not planar techniques. Planar techniques end up being about 10 times too expensive. You sort of think about a solar cell is made in a planar method and it's maybe $100 a square meter. Uh, manufactured. It's a pretty simple device. Uh, and if you unroll a lithium ion electrode, uh, it, it's worth about seven bucks a square meter. And so, it, you know, you're sort of an order of magnitude off. And so you really have to manufacture the material in a bulk process of big vats that scale really efficiently. So that's really what differentiates us from other folks. And it's, you know, a big part of why, um, you know, companies like Daimler and, and um, who, who led this last inv latest investment in BMW, who's a partner, why they, you know, believe that our technology um, will get to their uh, scale and make an impact on their business. Um, even though obviously today we're not at that scale and we're not impacting their business, but they see how you go from here to there. Mm -hmm. How did you, are they your first customers? And if so, how did you get them as your first customers? Yeah, they will be our first, um, first customers. Um, you know, in the auto industry, they, they, they have a, an opportunity to be our, our first customers as we come to market. Um, Different, different aspects, but maybe to, to summarize it a little bit, it's you, you have to just talk to a lot of people and you have to find the landscape and you have to find people who um, share your perspective. So this is a part where when you're looking for partnerships, you're actually looking for shared perspective. And it's not about, you know, you can't sell every automaker. We've, we've talked to a lot of automakers. We worked with a lot of automakers. And it's really finding the ones that believe the same things we believe in. And something we believe is that uh, those that underinvest in electrification in this next decade won't be around. And so there's a litmus test I've, I've had with executives of auto companies that I, that I meet and I might say something provocative to them, like half the automakers won't make it in 10 years if, uh, and see how they respond. And there's folks that um, kind of shrug, shrug it off and say, nah, it's not a real threat yet. And there's others who sort of, you know, believe that it's, you know, it's better to be less profitable now, uh, but, but have a business and have a thriving business, you know, a decade from now. And so you can kind of read the tea leaves in the, in the press. Um, but some of that is marketing and sort of cutting through that. You really just have to go meet all the, all the potential customers and partners and, and find shared perspective. I imagine many of those conversations end with a no. What is the no? Most like? of them. <laughs> <laughs> what is the no like at this point? Uh, you, to hear, like, oh, yeah, I've gotten used to it. I mean, mo more investors than, than, than those, you know, those conversations usually aren't, no, it's usually later, right? It's, it's you, you don't want to end it with, you know, you, we, we, the auto industry will go electric, all of it, and we want to supply everyone beyond BMW and Daimler. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, a, that's a bigger mission. It's a question of sort of who's first and who's later. Um, so you, you form good, you continue to form good relationships, but you're looking for that who's got the perspective that now's the time and who's got the perspective that we can wait a bit. And we'll still, you know, we'll help everybody along the way. Um, so with customers, it's not a lot of no's. It's more of, okay, maybe not right now. Um, with investors, it's a lot of no's. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's, uh, yeah. Um, after eight years of development of the product, you started building out your first uh, 50 megawatt hour production line. Where is that? And ultimately, where will production be? Yeah, so our first production line is in headquarters, which is in Alameda, California. Um, we sort of did a little bit of an um, uh, experiment of putting a, a production line in a business park, uh, which was interesting. Uh, it's worked out well now, uh, but took some took some serious engineering effort. And we have a fantastic team that, that, that is, uh, has pulled that off. Um, 
you know, but that's that's really so the engineers can walk out to the production line and and uh, see it, fix it, troubleshoot it, upgrade it, uh, do whatever it takes to get it going quickly. And uh, and then as we scale, you know, we're going to be looking for places to put factories full of those production lines, copies of those production lines, which is a fairly ro- low risk scale up approach. And we'll be looking, um, you know, first around the United States and ultimately around the world. Um, you know, we we believe that battery cells will be manufactured where cars are made just because they're so heavy and you don't want to move them and the materials will then follow along and so i think it's it's going to be all around the world so far this all sounds difficult but but like it's cruising along were there moments that you thought sila would fail um yes but they were very early, actually, and actually really from the beginning. Um, so maybe in, instead of sort of, I'll, I'll, I'll frame it a little bit differently. Going into it, I think we had a very healthy understanding that, hey, physics and chemistry might just be against us. This may not be a thing that's solvable or solvable right now with the tools available to scientists um, or solvable with the amount of capital that we can go get. And so I actually remember, you know, even a few months in um, getting pretty down about just that thought experiment of like, hey, there's a good chance we do this for a while and and it doesn't go anywhere um, because physics, right? And uh, <laughs> um, um, or at least chemistry. Uh, and, and and so we we thought philosophically what we wanted to do is build a kind of company where um, the process really mattered. Where if you're if you're doing the work right and you're pushing the limits and you're and you're and you're sort of um, doing the the best work you've ever done in your in you know in, in your career or some of the best work you've ever done in your career. That's what success looks like. And so you you think about you try to measure in a when solving scientific problems so early on when you don't know if they work or not. Not by hey did I did I do that in six months like I thought. I mean it took us three years and that was a success in retrospect because if you're doing it with the best folks um, that that you can recruit and 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 a really talented cohesive team. You know it's a barrier for everyone else. You know, it's still going to take someone else three years to to figure out how we did this and 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 uh, in, in those early uh, cycles. So, um, I think you just ha- you kind of get comfortable and you find you you don't want to measure yourself just by the out- end outcome. Now, as we mature as a company, it does become more ex- execution oriented, and as you can sort of plan, hey, this should take this long to build, and we want to build it in that time. Um, you, you know, you you have to shift the culture a little bit. But early on, I think there was a lot of um, I think none of us. Uh, thought that it was necessarily going to succeed mm-hmm. uh, and that we were okay with that. What was your single hardest day at Sila? You know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I'm very good at blocking out bad things like <laughs> very quickly. I'm, I'm sure my team could remind me, but I honestly, I, you know, it like I, I forget them and move on. And as long as we've got the the, the the team and we're you know healthy and happy um, we 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 go forward. <laughs> um, so Sila, as we said, is now valued at a billion dollars. How do you feel about the valuation? Great. I mean, it's a start. <laughs> I feel like we've. I feel like we finally finished raising our Series A. <laughs> <laughs> You're really driving up those Series A rounds. Yeah. Um, I know at Zila you do regular all hands where you encourage your team to ask me anything. Mm-hmm. What's the hardest question you've ever received? Or have you blocked that out as well? I probably blocked it out, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I, I think the the key is just to answer honestly and authentically. Uh, and I, you know, I, I try to do that. There's there's a bunch of people in the audience here who, you know, hopefully feel the same way. Um, 
But uh, no, I, I, I don't know. I don't remember any off the top of my head. Do you want to try to remember? <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> Fair. Um, so uh, we talked a little bit about, um, about your partner and your kids. What has it been like building the company while starting a family and being a husband? Yeah, so uh, it's true not just for us, but actually for a lot of folks at our company. We have quite a, quite a few babies uh, that, that have come, uh, come to be recently. And you know, even before that, I think one of the things we recognized is the, the journey matters and how you approach it really matters. And what you have to recognize is the friends and family really matter. So when we have Sila's anniversary uh, in August, Sila's birthday as we call it, you know, we, we make that a friends and family event. And we sort of think about it. It's all the people kind of behind the scenes that actually make it possible. So you know, um, I show up to work, but um, I, you know, we have two kids and I happen to have my parents. They live with us and, or we live, I still live with my parents, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, and, and, you know, it's because of that that I'm able to, to put in full time and my wife is able to work uh, at, at, at an intense job as well. So it's, it's, uh, it's all about the people behind the scenes and we try to kind of take that perspective and recognize it. Um, it's not that different for um, the, the CEO as it is for sort of anyone else. And so we want to, you know, be, be mindful of that when we do events. We, we try to have family-friendly events uh, for the company. Um, it's all about the friends and family to make it possible. Mm -hmm. um, we know that companies with diverse leadership have better financial returns. How does Sela and how do you think about diversity and inclusion? Yeah, we're, we've, we've taken a dive into that in the last year. Um, yeah, diverse teams that are well-managed uh, perform, perform better. So both things are key. Um, you know, right now we're focusing a lot on building an inclusive culture. We want to we, we, we have an environment where those different perspectives can be shared um, and openly and, and we can learn from each other. Um, you know, there's, there's easy things you can see there and there's things that are sort of more subtle and harder to see. But um, one of the things that's interesting about our company is we have, you know, you could um, uh, sort of take even not necessarily the demographic side of things, but just look at the technical disciplines. We have every single technical major you'd find at a major university, short of biology, roughly in equal proportions. Electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, software engineers, physicists, chemists, material scientists. And so even just there, you're trying to create an environment where people have mutual respect, a lot of mutual respect, because you're if you're hiring the best material scientists, they're not going to know, they're not going to be a very good mechanical engineer and they're not necessarily going to appreciate what the mechanical engineer brings to the table. And so you need to foster a culture and environment where, where people naturally start with respect, they start with trust, um, and, and, and that allows kind of everybody to contribute the most. Uh, we have a manufacturing culture, so, uh, you know, a, a great engineer doesn't necessarily appreciate what a fantastic operator, what, what traits they have, and, and what it is that makes them fantastic, but there's, there's, there's big differences, and that matters, and so you want to create an environment where, we want to create an environment where we start with respect, we start with trust uh, for, for kind of whatever whatever the person is bringing to the table, um, and then that lets us then, you know, hopefully recruit a more diverse uh, team uh, and a more talented team. Mm -hmm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Um, for me... Uh, I think it's, you know, it continues to be letting go. It's sort of, you know, I, I, I talked about this where it's like you give up this job, but you don't give it up that willingly, right? <laughs> Every time you raise a fund, funding, you sort of give up a part of your job. Um, so kind of learning to, to, to trust and lean on the team and 
and not manage through an understanding of everything, but manage through uh, kind of goals and objectives and sort of an understanding of you know enough things that um, that 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 you're comfortable. But again, with such a diverse skill set, you can't just sort of rely on knowing and understanding everything. Um, and I think it's something that. You know, I, I struggle with, but I think it's also natural for uh, engineers who have been with us for a long time who are used to kind of knowing everything that's going on in the company. Uh, it, it's a challenge up and down mm-hmm. a startup that that grows. You sort of you 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 lose touch um, a little bit, and you have to uh, learn to trust uh, and and sort of um, take it in smaller doses. Take that understanding in smaller mm-hmm. doses. Before we move into our high voltage round, where are you and Sila today? Where will you be in ten years, and what does that mean for the energy and mobility industry? Oh, I get ten years. You get ten years. I usually I've do listened five. to You're a couple right. of these, right. and I know it's usually <laughs> well, five. Well, because because for you guys, it's it's ten years just from idea to commercialization. That's so right. I added five just yeah. for you. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I I appreciate that. Um, yeah, where we are today is, you know, we're bring we're commissioning this first uh, production line. We'll be in consumer devices, uh, sort of within the next twelve months. We'll be, you know, you you'll be able to buy something that has our stuff in it, assuming things continue to go the way they're going, uh, which what is kind of well, um, small consumer devices. So fitness, you know, fitness tracker type things, smartwatch type things, earbud type things. And the reason is, you know, we have a very limited capacity and so we want to maximize the number of devices that are it, it, it's it's being used by so even sort of supporting um, you know one car uh, it would be you know instead we could do tens if not hundreds of thousands of uh, wireless earbuds and so it's a just we can we can make a bigger impact in that market um, so that's sort of what's coming up right now uh, you know five years from now uh, we're hopefully in our first major first or second major uh, electric vehicle platform so that's sort of the timeline it takes to go from here to build make enough material to start to supply you know hundreds of thousands of vehicles on an annual basis um, you know, uh, we, we sort of can't speak to specifics of our partners' plans, but in the in the in the press release we had with Daimler, sort of targeting mid 2020s uh, for deployment, and then sort of on a major uh, on a major product uh, product line. And you know, 10 years from now, it should be millions of electric vehicles. And uh, I think at that point, we maybe are also starting into doing some grid things. We're big believers of um, it's it's going to go consumer for our technology. EVs uh, and then and then grid and sort of other things, mm. and it's you 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 really want to find the places where your technology can have the most impact, have the most value, and it comes back to that business model. Um, so we we find that there's a lot more value that we can get in the market f- in consumer devices, and and uh, we can impact a lot more of them right away, and then electric vehicles and sort of then grid storage. Mm. All right, moving into our high voltage round. All right, first question: If you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Honey badger. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody in the audience is very enthusiastic about that. Um, Why? Uh, Relentless. They just don't care. They forget the bad stuff and keep going. Very appropriate. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? And I'm not allowed to do this one again because I'd I'd just do it all over again. (laughs) Um, Let's say no. Um. You know, I'd, I'd I'd probably look to to venture to try to again. I I think sort of the entrepreneurial venture model is incredible. Uh, can can do a lot of um, can be very high impact in the world. So I'd probably take the other side of the table. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, mostly not to myself. Um, you know, I think it starts with family, uh, and then huge amount of mentors uh, in in my career, um, from you know advisors in grad school. Um, shout out Chris Edwards uh, to you know the the folks at Sutter Hill who taught me a lot. Um, 
to, you know, um, you know, and now I'm probably blanking on others, folks like Martin Eberhardt. Um, and then I think the team, it's all about the team. So, uh, you know, I, you can, I can hire much better, much more talented people than, than I am at certain things. And that's, um, uh, it's, you know, putting them together and, and connecting the group. That's sort of what I can do. But, uh, you know, success is all about the t- having the right team. Mm. When have you failed? I'm going to give you as much time as you need to think of this. Wow. <laughs> but I'm really good at locking it out. Um, the B minus doesn't count. <laughs> I, that's a pretty good one. Alex, you got anything for me? No? Um, that's, that's some, um, I mean, other than constantly. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I think there's a look. I think there's a feeling as a first-time CEO that you don't necessarily know. Um, you haven't. I haven't done this before, so every single day is the biggest company I've ever managed. So you know, I, I feel like I screw stuff up left and right all the time, which is why you know, like one time doesn't necessarily stand out. And and so I think it's about having sort of course correction mechanisms, and you know, tr- I'm learning to listen to feedback more, and and also you know, and and um, so I I I think it's. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's all about how quickly you learn, um, you know, yeah. What's the best investment you've ever made? Does, does marrying my wife count? Damn straight it does. All right. <laughs> we eloped, so very low cost too. <laughs> oh my God. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. Just got to drive the ROI up. <laughs> Hi, ROI. Um, uh, what is the hardest thing you've dealt with? Um, you know, I think it's always it's always people challenges. So the the you know starting a company, you always think about oh this is going to be hard, that's going to be hard, and and the things you think are going to be hard are easy, and and the things you think are kind of going to be easy, like you know um, managing folks are like well maybe I didn't necessarily think that was going to be easy, but that's really hard, um, and sort of you know uh, especially if 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 um, you know making hiring mistakes is probably the 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 hardest, uh, you, you sort of you you have a lot of empathy for people, um, but when it's not a fit, it's not a fit, and and I think that's that's tough. That's probably the, the you know, and it comes back to like if you know those are the, the the toughest challenges. Definitely, what's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? I used to think batteries were reasonably easy, actually. No, I really didn't. Uh, and I, I've, uh, I've, I've taken a new perspective recently, which is that it's actually uh, it's a, it's a, it's a moving system. Uh, so unlike most electronic devices, if, you, if you're um, an engineer or a scientist, you think about this a little bit, uh, most electronic devices, only the electrons move. And in a battery, atoms move every single charge and discharge. And a huge number of atoms move. And so it's a, um, the amount of mass you're moving, you know, 100 microns, which is a pretty big distance, uh, is, is uh, uh, pretty insane. And so actually lithium-ion batteries are, are I used to think were, were pretty easy. And I, I actually wanted to get away from batteries after Tesla. I was like, ah, this is a little boring and kind of easy. And uh, that was before I started getting into the science. That was when I sort of uh, worked with them on a system level. So yeah, I no longer believe that. Uh, When are you your best self? Hmm. Friends, when, when I have friends around, yeah. What is your worst trait? Um... I'm not the best listener sometimes. Can be a little stubborn. Most entrepreneurs are. Yeah. Um, 
What's your ultimate goal? Leave a dent in the universe. What is your single greatest career embarrassment? Like, I'm, I'm really good at blocking bad stuff out, Emily. <laughs> I'm really not trying to, like, not give you something. I'm just really good at blocking stuff out. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, can I, I'll, I get one pass? You get one pass. Right. Um, what is your single greatest career achievement? Um, this latest financing was quite quite uh quite a story and uh uh it was it was uh, very fun to, to sort of pull together and pull off if you could change one thing about the world what would it be how big are we talking here as big as you want yeah you know so all right um you know i there's no reason that we we shouldn't be driving electric cars in mass today. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about science is it's um, the world is 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 not a is not a state function. It's a path function. Meaning, you know how how you how we got here matters to why why we're here. And you know, there's certainly um, not a lot of great reasons why you couldn't have invented nickel metal hydride and lithium ion sort of earlier in the in the uh in the history of batteries and you know we sh could all be driving electric vehicles powered by by you know um conversion type lithium chemistries which is what we work on today so i i guess i'd sort of work myself out of a job we'd all be already driving those if i could change anything of the tens of thousands of people who will hear this if you could have just one person who heard this podcast who would you want it to be um I'll I'll take whoever you know if if uh, one of the things one of the formative things for me was seeing founders uh, at Stanford um, often give talks and and feeling like they're normal people so whoever that kid who is sort of me at you know nineteen listening to this like it's you know there's a there's a lot of luck involved and a lot of hard work um, but it's you know um, to the extent that someone wants to be an entrepreneur and try to build a billion dollar business, uh, it, it's normal people uh, who work hard and get a little bit lucky. What's the one thing that you hope I don't ask you, but I should? <laughs> you already got the, uh, the, the warehouse story, so I don't, I don't, I got um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have much more than that. Okay. Um, Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because a lot of reasons, but oftentimes because they just pick uh, the wrong problem to go after. Success is a great team achieving stuff that uh, no one thought was possible alone. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Our mistakes are part of how we get here, so I don't think I would. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Uh, commercialize the first new battery chemistry in, uh, in 30 years with uh, uh, a company with an amazing culture. I'm most proud of? The team I've 
uh, been able to convince and who's then subsequently convinced the 125 people that work at Sila today. Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? A village. With that, before you clap, because I'm going to take a video of this and put it on social media, please give a giant round of applause for Gene. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>